Hi everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. I'm Anna Alexanian and today our guest is Dr. Tallinn Sujian. Dr. Sujian completed her PhD at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, where she is currently working on her second book at the Institute of Near and Middle Eastern Studies. Today we are going to speak about Dr. Sujian's book titled The Armenians in Modern Turkey, Post-Genocide Society, Politics and History, which was published in 2016. Welcome to the podcast and uh, my first question is, so what this book is about and can you give us a brief introduction of it? Thank you for inviting me uh, to the SIS podcast series. Let me start by saying that this book is dedicated to the beloved memory of Varujan Köseyan. Varujan Köseyan was a uh, Bursa Edincik-born Armenian public intellectual who wrote books, articles, news items for Armenian newspapers, and was living memory of Armenian life in Turkey after 1920 till uh, his death in 2011. He was uh, the one who rescued the collection of newspapers, years, yearbooks, and other periodicals before they were sent to recycling and stored them in the backyard of Armenian hospital, Supergic, um, where I conducted my research. After four years of research, the administration of Supergic Hospital turned this place to, into a library where researchers can go and work today. This is the first and probably the most important achievement that the book uh, has um, has done. Yes. Um, in these days, I'm very happy uh, and grateful seeing that the Turkish publication, the Turkish translation of the book has been published. Um, translated by Ayşe Günaysu, published by Aras Publishing House in Istanbul, and I'm happy that the book is uh, meet, meeting the, the readers in Turkey. So, um, let's continue with the content uh, and the sources of the book, if you like. I think the most important asset of this book is the fact that it brings a vast corpus of Armenian primary and secondary sources together with Turkish primary and secondary sources, such as the Turkish state archives or the newspapers published in Turkey. One may ask what the primary sources of Armenians are, for instance, the proceedings of Armenian administration or the publications of Armenian administration throughout the decades of the Republic. Armenian administration never ceased to exist. Hence, it has its records, publications, and they are the primary sources of Armenians. Further, the oral histories that I conducted with Armenian survivors and the children of Armenian survivors, both in Turkey and elsewhere, they too are primary sources of this book. Hence, this book brings variety of sources together, memoirs, oral histories, Armenian periodicals, state archives, proceedings of Armenian administration, biographies, and personal archives. So um, the first of its kind, the book aims at contributing to a different historiography of Turkey. So uh, when I was reading your book, I paid attention to the terminology, the unique terminology that you have used in, in it. Uh, can you speak more about what means, for example, the habitus of denial? And I would also like to hear more about the term minority that you have not used in a book. 
the reason for not using the term, for example, while referring the Armenians in Turkey in the context of aftermath of the genocide? So regarding the terminology, I introduced post-genocide habitus of denial to understand state and society structures and the, uh, the way everyday life is structured in Turkey. By using the term post-genocide, I mean to underline the continuities within the empire and the republic. Crystallized collective violence did not end in 1916, and policies related to that period continued well into the decades after. Post-genocide doesn't refer to a time period, but it rather emphasizes the reservoir of experience and knowledge that have been attained through implementing genocidal policies and reproduced over decades through mechanisms of denial, applying similar methods without any resistance, in many cases with a strong social support, is the result of post-genocide habitus of denial. While thinking about society, politics or culture in Turkey, we have to keep in mind that the survivor and the perpetrator have been living together side by side without recognition of the crime and moreover in pervasive denial, which erases the categories of the victim, the survivor and the perpetrator, creating a set of practices in an everyday life, normalizing the crime And this is what I call habitus of denial. In this habitus, the survivor continues to be victimized over generations and the perpetrator remains exempt from responsibility. While genocide creates an endless, irreversible, unaccountable, indescribable situation for the victim, the post-genocide period normalizes all these by denial in case of Turkey. This very normalization should be problematized and mechanisms of denial should be revealed on all levels. Mm -hmm. A second point that I consider important is denialism encapsulated within the terminology of minority. The discussions around the legal and social conditions of the remaining Armenians in Turkey are mostly shaped by a legal terminology within the understanding of the nation-state namely the terminology of minority. I believe here again a clarification regarding the terminology is called for. Minority as a concept refers rather to a set of rights and duties, a juridical categorization that renders invisible the history of genocide and, very, and of various exiles, thereby legitimizing the result. Moreover, the term is also used anachronistically For instance, talking about 19th century, many historians refer to non-Muslims as minorities. Mm. However, we all know that Ottoman Empire did not have minorities as such. Therefore, the term has various layers of denial in both ter in terms of uh, Turkey's and Ottoman Empire's history. Further, the fact remains that none of the non-Muslim groups in the Ottoman Empire had identical rights or the same social, political or juridical background. We encounter the concept of minority in the Treaty of Lausanne, which is said to be the guarantee for the rights of the non-Muslims remaining in Turkey. However, there are no rights and regulations set for all the, all the non-Muslim groups. Furthermore, the Treaty of Lausanne regarding the rights of non-Muslims is only valid de facto in Istanbul. For instance, 
The treaty guarantees the right to education for non-Muslims. However, we know that there has been no schools permitted in the provinces after the 1920s. Although there were school, school buildings and all necessary facilities existing almost in all cities and towns where the Armenians continued to live, these schools were not permitted to serve their communities. Therefore, neither the terminology nor the implementation allow us to consider Treaty of Lausanne as an international treaty regulating the rights of non-Muslims in Turkey. Because of all these reasons, I choose to refer to the groups with their names without trying to create a generic umbrella, a generic umbrella group. That is to say, it is much more meaningful to refer to, refer to Rum people as Rum, Armenians as Armenians, Jews as Jews, Assyrians as Assyrians, Nestorians as Nestorians, Chaldeans as Chaldeans, or Alevis as Alevis. In fact, this makes our work easier than trying to define a terminology which doesn't reflect the reality. Um, well, let's talk about Istanbul. Um, so what kind of place Istanbul became for Armenians after the armistice of Modras was signed? And of course, the role that Istanbul Armenians played for Armenian survivors to preserve the small number of survivors who came to Istanbul. And um, how this changed after 1923. While the Armenians in the provinces were living under constant threats, Istanbul continued to remain as a destination for Kahtagan people. I use the term Kahtagan as it is used in the sources of the 1920s and 30s and even afterwards, and the word has a connotation of perpetual exodus. After 1915-16 and also after 1923, Istanbul was one of the main destinations for the Armenian survivors from the provinces. The situation remained so for decades to come. Exile waves continued throughout the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s and afterwards. For many, the direction was first Istanbul and then Europe or North America, for some others Syria and Lebanon. Many Armenians whose living conditions in the provinces systematically deteriorated and who made their way to Istanbul had to face the living conditions in Kahtagayans. Kahtagayans were Kahtagan centers and hosted thousands of Armenians from the provinces. And you have to keep in mind that all these have been organized by the means of Armenians of Istanbul. Um, for instance, the school that I attended, Sahakyan Union, in the district of Samatya in Istanbul, was one of these Kahtagayan, Kahtagayans, so Kahtagan centers. I mean, newspapers published in Istanbul in 1920s and 30s are full of news items, reports uh, on the severe condition of Kahtagan people in the centers they remained. According to these news items, people used to live one on top of the other. The community in Istanbul was responsible for providing food, work, and a sustainable life for these people. Kahtagan waves never stopped, however, after 1940s, there was no centrally administered shelters anymore. Orphanages, on the other hand, continue to remain open to this day. One of the main reasons of perpetual exodus was definitely the ban on Armenian schools in the provinces that I mentioned. After the publication of my book, an Armenian from Canada contacted me 
as I was looking for information on, uh, on Gümüşyan School in Kayseri, which remained open exceptionally until 1929. This person, who was born in 1945 in Talas, near Kayseri, wrote me an email explaining uh, their efforts to organize an Armenian language course in Kayseri. They ordered Armenian books from Istanbul and created a library. After this, they received a phone call from the police station stating that they heard about the preparations done for Armenian language classes and police was getting prepared to raid the place in two days. They were advised to annihilate any evidence of their crime. They collected all the books and they, uh, that they acquired from Istanbul and burned them. After this incident, this person who contacted me came to Istanbul in 1967 and from there he went to Canada, where he continues to live today. This is one of the many book burnings happened in almost every Armenian family and institution throughout the years of the Republic. Armenians owned numerous publishing houses and published books and periodicals intensively throughout the 19th and 20th century. So, what happened to all these publications? A quite interesting set of documents that I came across in the state archives uh, were the lists of Armenian publications from all over the world, which were banned. The ban on the delivery of these publications into Turkey also mandated the collection of the copies already existing in the country. So one may ask again a very simple question. Okay, they banned those publications on the paper, but how were they controlling the books already existing in the country? Although archives are not forthcoming in revealing the mechanisms of collections uh, the, of existing copies, the oral history that I conducted with Professor Miran Daba, who is the head of Institute of Diaspora and Genocide Research in Germany, provides some hints regarding the book bands. And I quote from him. We didn't have the right to keep Armenian books at school, that is, it wasn't possible to keep books published before 1923 or outside of Turkey. The school administration didn't, didn't know where to keep them. First, they were hidden up in the Surbhach Bell. They snaked them right up the bell tower. Then the church administration started to become afraid. So they brought them back down to the school again. And then the school administration started to get afraid. Finally, because they just didn't know what else to do with the books, they had to throw them straight into Tibrevang's heating boiler. I was there, right in front of it, and that moment will always remain before my eyes. End of quote. Um, Professor Mirandaba was born in uh, Diyarbakir and attended Armenian school in Istanbul, Tibrevang Armenian school. That was uh, a boarding school at that time. Um, an incident of book burning appears in yet another oral historical account, this time um, by A.K. And this oral history has been conducted in Berlin. In ninth grade, I took responsibility for the Armenian library. In 1967, there used to be a Hagop Abrahamian printing house. This man's press was shut down, and two trucks full of books arrived at Tbrevang. 
it's, ha- it's us who brought those books in and that book burning in the boiler ended up taking care of our laundry. End of quote. So, as we see, book burning over decades has been a constant practice of self-destruction, in fact, in which the community itself was forced to become complicit as a result of their obligatory participation in denial. In other words, there was no other way out of denial. It is, of course, very tragic that Armenians were forced to be part of this destruction. Uh, But do you know if there were any resistance uh, from the Armenian side? In the book, I tried to show dynamics of surviving in the genocide, in the geography of genocide. While reading the book, you will see that despite institutionalized, normalized denial, and despite the fact that Armenians were forced to be part of denial as a consequence of their survival, there were still Armenian intellectuals of the first generation in Turkey who struggled insistently against denial. They they, they continued their claims of rights. They protested against anti-Armenian campaigns or against the eradication of the legal basis of the community and racism in general. This group of Armenian intellectuals is called the generation of Nor-Or, as many of them, like Aram Pehlivanyan, Zavem Biberian, Avidis Alexanian, uh, Jacques Ihmalian, and others, uh, were publishers of the Nor-Or newspaper in the 1940s. The result of this struggle devastated their lives. Nonetheless, their struggle should find its place in historiography. What about Islamized Armenians? As we know, many Armenians changed their religion to protect themselves and their children, especially in the provinces. But even uh, conversion was not a solution for them because the neighbors knew who they were and the state knew. So... Again, they were in danger. So what about them? So regarding the uh, Islamicized Armenians, um, there were uh, many of them, of course, uh, living in the provinces. And we can uh, read about um, of their existence in the memoirs. Uh, for instance, in the memoir of uh, Kevor Kalachian, Tebika Haran, where he goes to all the provinces in 1925 uh, to 28, he uh, comes across, he came across almost in all cities of, um, of northern Mesopotamia and Asia Minor with the Further, uh, of course, there are still uh, generations, third and fourth generations uh, living in the provinces and elsewhere. So here we have um, another oral historical account, um, an oral history that I conducted in Munich uh, with a woman uh, from the region of Dersim. She was born in Putahia, Aivalula, in 1945. And uh, this is what she told me, and I quote, My parents were born in Halvori, a village in Dersim region. All my family has been Muslimized, and they all have Turkish names. In 1939, 
They were exiled. Many of our relatives were resettled in the villages of Kütahya. In the, this is in the western part of the country. They lost contact since it was banned strictly to leave the village. Their names, their birth registers, and religion were changed. I was born as a Muslim with a Turkish name. After the 6th-7th September 1955, we decided to go to Istanbul. After arriving in Istanbul, my mother told that we were Armenian Christians. Some of us converted back to Christianity while getting married, some before dying. I was baptized at the age of 17 since I was engaged. End of quote. Of course, one has to um, consider the situation in Istanbul in the decades of the early decades of the Republic, where continuously Kaftagan people were coming from the provinces, and plus Islamized Armenians. And, uh, the, the, and of course, there was an existing local Armenian community in Istanbul. And the conflicts among them were also uh, important, and the, the ones who were Islamized were definitely uh, on the bottom line of all hierarchies, and they were marginalized as they couldn't uh, speak Armenian, or they were um, they were not considered enough Armenian as the others. Um, and for them, it was the most the situation was the most difficult one. Uh, so, what about your second book? Uh, can you tell us a few words about your second book book project? Um, for my second book project, um, I have been working on the period of um, Tanzimat and the Ottoman Empire in 19th century, uh, especially before and after the Ottoman provincial reform, and trying to understand what Tanzimat meant for Armenians, uh, both in, in Constantinople and in the provinces. And I have been... Uh, working on Armenian periodicals, but more importantly on Armenian Patriarchate's archive, uh, which is a rescued archive, basically, uh, in Bovosnobar Library, found in uh, Bovosnobar Library. And uh, it has uh, some very rich uh, sources on the everyday life uh, of Armenians in, in the Ottoman Empire and interaction of Armenian administration with the other millets as well as uh, with the Ottoman administration. So it's a very exciting project uh, for me uh, to see in, in the smallest units of uh, dwelling units how various millets interacted with each other and the local power hierarchies and, um, and their intermediaries and... Um, uh, Armenian administration all over the Ottoman Empire, um, funk, the network of uh, Armenian administration and how it interacted with the Ottoman administration, I found it um, really eye-opening. And um, the Patriarchate arch Archive is, uh, from that perspective, a very rich uh, primary source to rethink the period of Tanzimat. I already published an article uh, in Turkish based on uh, one of these documents um, from the Armenian Patriarchate Archive, um, 
which has been published in Turkish Kimsenin Yüzünü Görmedim Çocuk Dayımdandır 1856'da Konya Akşehir'de Ermenik hissesinde çözülememiş bir dava. The English translation would be Didn't see anybody's faces. The baby is from my uncle. A case unresolved by the Armenian administration in Akşehir, Konya in 1856. The article discusses a case of incest, adultery and infanticide in an Armenian family in Konya, Akşehir. This new book will be shedding light on uh, Armenian family law uh, and the way Armenian administration functioned both in provinces and in Istanbul. It sounds really fascinating and I wish you good luck with the new project. And for those who are interested in learning more, go and find Dr. Sujan's book, uh, The Armenians in Modern Turkey, Post-Genocide Society, Politics and History, which recently became co-winner of the SAS Outstanding Book Award for 2015-2017. And uh, I want to thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for, for your invitation.